Good morning, and welcome once again to Mind Matters, our series of bridge talks and lectures. I'm Carol Meng. Today we'll learn about a book called *The Dean of Shandong*, written by Professor Daniel Bell, the Chair of Political Theory with the Faculty of Law at University of Hong Kong, and the Dean of the School of Political Science and Public Administration at Shandong University from 2017 to 2022. In this book, Professor Bell gives us an inside look at the workings of China's academia and political system. He talked to Brian Wong, the associate professor in philosophy at the University of Hong Kong, about the lessons learned from his unique experience, his perspectives on China's political system, and where China's educational system will evolve from here. They were invited by the Asia Society for a discussion entitled "Book Talk with Daniel Bell, the Dean of Shandong." Daniel, can you tell us a bit more about the motivation behind this book, right? Because we've heard a lot about the contents of the book. I'm sure many of you have read the book, but perhaps you know, just going back to the very start, what were you thinking in pen to paper or fingers to laptop in in putting together this this interesting? Sure, yeah, incredibly insightful read. Now, why I wrote this book? Um, I mean, there's several reasons. That as soon as I started serving as dean, I realized that this is going to be a fascinating experience. I mean, even the very boring stuff, like four-hour meetings, I realized, well, this is quite interesting. Why are they four hours? It's such a long time. So then, it, well, what it sheds light on things like collective leadership, which operates not just at higher levels of government, but at, at lower levels, including academic institutions. In Hong Kong, you, I don't think there's collective leadership, but at Shandong University, there is, right? And also, that's one reason, by the way. Uh, anyway, why the Xiaojiang and so on are not, are less endangered in mainland China than here because there's collective leadership. Um, that's so. That's the first reason is that. It's, it was a fascinating experience. I mean, even the boring parts turned out not to be so boring, right? And also, even during those meetings, you know, what were people writing? Were they really following the debates that much? And and so on. I mean, these these are fascinating questions. But it's also that I mean, I had been working on. I had served at the University of、uh, Tsinghua University for thirteen years, and I wrote about political meritocracy, Xianlong Zhengzhi. But it was more of a kind of Ideal, but I want to learn how to operate it from the inside. So serving from the inside shed a lot of light, and I thought it could help my, you know, it it could help me to learn much. So that's another reason. But another reason is that I didn't succeed as to the extent that I thought I I would as dean, and and so writing a, a book that was relatively sympathetic towards my colleagues and students, I thought would be one way of, of thanking them. And and the last reason, which is perhaps the least successful, is that. And this and the now it's、oh, I was why what was going through my mind when I thought this and I even mentioned that in the book was that I thought that I could help to counter the demonization of China by portraying the more humane or normal or sometimes even humorous side of China, but I realized the forces、uh, that you know in favor of the demonization of China are much too strong for a humble little book like mine to try to、uh, challenge in any way. So I'm not sure what was going through my mind when I when I saw that. You know. There's a lot to unpack in that comment, and perhaps I just want to start with this sort of theory practice gap or the juxtaposition that you highlighted there, because you know, for those of you who are familiar with Daniel's works, he'd spent decades looking into the sort of ideal type of governance that the China model 
of meritocracy as espoused by sort of what China could potentially become as an ideal evolved form. And yet many of your critics often say, you know, your, your defense doesn't stand up to empirical scrutiny. It doesn't measure up to, or rather the reality doesn't live up to the ideals here, so to speak. And your methodology of looking for this ideal, almost platonic vision of what the China model could look like, you know, it's interesting, but it doesn't really help us or those of us trying to understand China, especially in its heterogeneous magnitude as we see today. So how has your experience in Shandong altered your methodology, if at all? Has it made you perhaps more jaded, more cynical, and more open to this sort of non-ideal critique of your methodology as being too idealistic, if you will? Uh, so the, uh, it's not meant to be an ideal that I pluck out of nowhere that applied to a certain situation. I and mean, it comes out of my experience teaching and working at Tsinghua University, which trains many of China's leaders, and people were arguing there, before I had worked in Hong Kong, I worked for eight years in Hong Kong. And this, those were the days when people held one ideal, one person, one vote. And it was a purely empirical question of how to get there. But as soon as I arrived in Beijing, people were arguing about different things. How to train leaders with above average ability and virtues. And what's the right way of assessing ability and virtue? And how, and what's the relation between ability and virtue? These questions were fascinating to me, unasked for in Hong Kong. So then I thought it was, we, let's try to write a book that makes sense of these ideals that are being argued about and applied at at my university in Beijing. Um, so, so, but then I thought going to Shandong would be a way of learning about how it works from the inside. So again, it's not a, it's not an idea that comes from you know the outside. It's it's a, an idea that I really learned about by working in Beijing, and then I thought that I could learn more about it by furthering my research in Shandong. But of course, there's always going to be gap between the ideal and the reality. There's no way to avoid that. The question is, what are the ideals that we should use to think about how to improve the current status quo? Should it be these ideals, you know, one person, one vote, or electoral democracy, or, or Western celebrity democracy, or should it be something that was more to the way that leaders and others actually think in, in, in China? Yeah. No, I, I, I must clarify, I was not trying to, you know, excite you too much with a leading question. I don't know. It's more... The observation that you made just then, which is we have to understand political systems and values by looking really into the practices, into the beliefs and the norms adopted by folks on the ground. That's a hugely underrated and also deeply invaluable aspect of, you know, political theory, right? That we can't just transplant and inherit a sort of exogenous and ultimately ill-equipped Ill model that's not necessarily fit for purpose, so to speak. And now turning to another value that's often championed in you know, liberal democracies or elsewhere. It's the notion of the freedom of speech. And this is where I found your discussion in the book, once again, quite illuminating. And we observe that, yes, there are overt instances of censorship and examples of that a plenty in mainland China. And also, you know, across maybe Hong Kong or other parts of uh, the greater China sphere as well. But on the other hand, you've also lamented the almost increasing singularity with which this echo chamber of mainstream Western so media outlets uh, talk about, when they talk about China, it's a very so monomythic and almost lacking a nuance approach they take to such coverage and reporting. I was wondering if you could perhaps unpack this this comment that you made right, about being shut out from a lot of these platforms. How do you feel about this sort of exclusion? And do you think there's a serious problem with the media as we see in the West? Or was it really just an incidental sort of blip that you're confident that eventually will be self-correcting? Because you, you talked about the the powers that be just then in terms of the demonizing of China, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it is 
a bit peculiar on the face of it that I, I, I served in China, in mainland China, and I'm still serving in China for like 20 years. And the more local experience I have, the more local knowledge I have, the less interest there is in the mainstream media outside of China. That's a bit peculiar. But I was, when I had just arrived in China, you know, then there was lots of interest, Canadian media where I'm from, American and so on. But the more, and it's not just me, it's many people who are based in China assume that you've kind of gone native and therefore you're no longer a reliable source. So, you know, if, if you read like who, the, it's not a critique, it's just a description, who, you know, who the, you know, mainstream Western media, who they interview, typically they're people based outside of China and who don't have much local experience. I mean, it's, it's quite amazing. Um, so that said, there's so, as you know, in the, in the book, the longest chapter is the one on censorship. And the first half is mainly about the state sponsored censorship in China, which is getting worse. I'm, I'm quite honest about that. And the problem is not just censorship, but the shifting boundaries that when I was dean, you know, people who had prepared for many years, like scholars working on like social protests in China, it was, it, they could do that 10 years ago. And all of a sudden they can't do that. And they have to retrain themselves and write about something else like environmental issues, which by the way, were off limits 10 years ago, but now they're on limits, you know, so, so to speak, or international organizations. So the shifting boundaries, that's what really bothers people. Of course, the increasing trend of, of censorship is a problem, but you see the idea you don't know exactly know what you can write on and you spend years training for something and then all of a sudden, oh, you can't do that anymore or else you're trained in Chinese writing in Chinese language and then you can only write that in English language, which is a problem. Although when I wrote this book, I was pessimistic, but now because of Chad GPT, I'm not so pessimistic because it helps Chinese scholars to write in English, really. So, so that's one half is, is the kind of space, space, state sponsored censorship, which is not just, the problem is not just that it's getting, you know, m m worse in terms of censorship, but that the boundaries are getting increasingly unclear, which leaves a lot of scholars in a precarious position. That's uh, obviously an issue. And in the West also, I mean, if you want to write about China now, like my, my, my book, as you know, I try to be balanced, but I have to begin the book with this kind of virtue signaling. Introduction, I say, what's wrong in China? Xinjiang, you know, national security law in Hong Kong, dong, dong, dong. I have to go through the whole list. And only then can I write what I really wanted to write. I mean, in a way, it's a kind of, that's the only way to go through the system now, really, in the West. That even in scholar, I thought, I shouldn't say, I don't want to criticize. There's a big difference in the mainstream media where the censorship, informal censorship is like, rigorously applied, but the academic publishers are still more open to diverse views, luckily. Um, I think what you raised there, we'll get to the AI question very shortly, actually, but what you said in there about this sort of shifting bill post, really, and the, the coronative self-censorship and chilling effect that we see, um, and not just necessarily in countries like China, but also even in the States, where on a, you know, college campuses, there are apparently certain things you can or can't say Queer academic administrators, academics or, or staff, really. There's this sort of overarching trend of self-censorship that aims to curtail the realm of permissible speech, where the sanctions are not so much legal consequences and penalties as just social shaming and castigation. And I guess on that note, you know, are there any sort of tips and strategies you'd offer to those folks who try to overcome, you know, the tendencies or temptation to self-censor? Or to navigate, you know, the constant quagmire of not knowing if what you said might be treading on someone's toes, or maybe it's too safe, or maybe it's too radical. You know, what are the tips that academics and scholars working, you know, in that sort of almost grey twilight zone could 
could take from you in a book, so to speak, Daniel? Uh, so, well, okay. So as an academic, if you, if you try to publish in periodicals, it's in the West, it's much harder because you have to use this dichotomy, democracy versus autocratic, the same dichotomy that's used by the politicians in the U.S. The scholars use the same ones. And if you don't use that, you can forget about being published. That's that, 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 but if you write a book, again, you have a bit of virtue signaling at the start can get you through the system. It's similar in China. I mean, in China, you have to give some speeches, you know, dung, 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 you know, and then you can say what you really want. It's, it's a very similar mechanism in both cases. But I do want to say this is not just like, uh, you know, I do believe that Hong Kong, we're in a lucky position here where we can be a, a bit for balance, right? We're not viewed as on wholly on one side or wholly on the other side. So we can be a bit more um, forthcoming in terms of what we really want to say without too much virtue signaling on either side. You're listening to Mind Matters, where we just had Professor Daniel Bell from the University of Hong Kong telling us about his experience in China. Next, he will continue to discuss his insights with Professor Wang towards China's political system and more. I must ask you a question, though, related to your experiences as an administrator. Now, you know, in earlier writings, I think it was a piece around 15 to 10 years ago, you suggested actually the Chinese Communist Party should really renown itself to the Chinese Confucian Party because of the prevalence and the importance and centrality of Confucian norms to how governance operated in China then. Now, given all that's happened to China since, um, Danny, where do you stand on this matter? Do you think, as you sort of hint at in your book, that perhaps that statement is a tad premature or doesn't necessarily reflect the nature of Chinese politics today in 2023 or 2024? Yeah, so there's, thank you. So there's been this huge revival of Confucianism, which, which started about mm, three decades ago. And that's been more or less ongoing. It's strongest in Shandong province, which is the home culture of Confucianism. And in the book, I show many examples of how, of how Confucianism shares the way that we, or influences the way that we act and, and think in a way that might, might not be true in other parts of China. Um, and, and it's still true. And I think it's true that, in, I mean, it doesn't really depend who the leaders are in China. I do think it's similar to other countries, you know, Russia, India, many other countries. It's, I mean, it's paradoxically, the more modern they get, the more pa- traditional they get. And the traditions are being revived and it's happening in China. And it's going to be part, not just of the official kind of value system, but also in terms of it, the way that people think of, of themselves and what's valuable in life. But what, I, what did surprise me, was the revival of the um, communist or Marxist tradition, which has taken place over the past uh, 15 years and which has gotten stronger. And I don't think it's purely instrumental. I do think there is a growing attachment to the Marxist tradition. And and and, and, and I, I think there's good reasons for that as well. I suppose one theory or hypothesis there is that it's really developed in response to the difficulties that you'd hinted at, you know, that China experienced towards the end of the 2000s when it came to widespread corruption, the detachment and disconnect between the party and the people, and factionalism and balkanization of the elite, and also yeah. the Zhongyi problem that really, you know, was the key in the late 2000s that President Xi had sort of you know, deal with and address yeah. by reinvigorating China with this sense of a 
a shared purpose. Now, you know, shifting into a slightly different discussion, you know, on a note of corruption, you know, you, you suggested that maybe sometimes in a book, right, this this hardline, no tolerance approach to corruption might not necessarily be in order, that maybe sometimes corruption could be useful, only in limited cases, perhaps, that you didn't necessarily specify. But Yunyan Ang, for instance, talks about sort of different kinds of corruption in her discussion of China's gilded oath, so to speak. So I just want you to unpack, perhaps, Daniel, for us here. What are your thoughts on corruption in general in developing countries, in developed countries? Are there instances where corruption could actually be not just permissible, but actually a good thing? Yeah, so um, the uh, thank you for this sensitive question. Um, so the, uh, the early days of economic development, including in China, I mean, if there is corruption, I mean, meaning that bribes and gifts are exchanged to public officials, but if the public officials will still then, you know, do things like ban, sure, you know, like that promotes economic development, then it's not necessarily a huge problem. I mean, there's, you know, people say, oh, the big difference between corruption in the early days of China and India is that in, in India, they would take the bribes, not do anything, but in China, they would still do stuff. So the problem is that corruption became so dominant and that it really posed an existential threat to the system. And then there were two reasons why that happened. One is that common people, so to speak, they had to use bribes to get their children to schools or to get their parents at the hospitals and so on. That caused tremendous amount of resentment. And two, that the government derives legitimacy precisely not from its, um, you know, the fact that it's elected from the people, but by the fact that it has superior ability and virtue. And virtue means that you're serving the public, not misusing public funds for your all your family purposes. So there's a huge gap between the, you know, the legitimizing ideal and, and the reality. So it was in, I mean, in retrospect, but it's not just, you know, in retrospect, but at the time people were saying that and 10 years ago, corruption posed an existential threat to the system. So we had to deal with it in a very strong way. But I guess my, my critique, more little, it's not a critique. I mean, I'm more or less in favor, but that it went a bit too far, um, to the point that it, it made public officials very conservative and and reluctant to to do things, even though they thought those things would be beneficial, not just for themselves, but for the overall system, because you had to keep your head down for fear of, be, of your head being chopped off, you know. So that's that's why um, I, I I think that the anti-corruption campaign was and is still necessary, but there's a need to move on towards more kind of, you know, um, less... Yeah, like less legalistic means of dealing with the problem. Yeah. Less sort of doctrinaire or dogmatic, right? But and less fear, less fear of harsh punishments and more on, on, on a kind of moral, you know, uh, power, so to speak. You know? And this is interesting because, you know, you can always apply this discussion to analyzing different segments of the Chinese bureaucracy because it's China is so large and the bureaucratic system is so complex and diverse and varied that an economics official in charge of planning and reform in a certain province or even within a city within a province on a coastal area is likely to have a very different background and training from, say, an academic administrator administering uh, a university or even just a department in university in central China. So on that note, I guess, you know, to what extent, Daniel, do you think your experiences of the bureaucracy in Shandong, which suffice to say might not have been 
you know, the best of experiences is reflective of the bureaucracy at large in China? And do you think the bureaucracy in China has changed and shifted over the past 20 to 30 years in different directions? And if so, what do you make of these changes and shifts in a bureaucracy at large? Well, okay, so thanks. So Shandong is the most bureaucratic part of the most bureaucratic country in the world, right? I mean, just to give you one example, in the rest of China, including in Hong Kong, the lucky number is eight, right? But in Shandong, it's seven. Um, why? Well, because Xi Sheng, Ba Xia. So if you're 57 years old and you're still in the, in the system, you have a hope of being promoted. But if you're 58, forget about it. You're on the way to retirement. So in the, we would compete to have number sevens on our offices. The license plates in Shandong province, you have lots of number sevens, two number eights. So people very strive very hard to be public officials. And I do think it's the Confucian ideal that best life serves is the life of serving the public as opposed to, you know, other ways like making money as an entrepreneur or being an artist and so on. So Shandong is very, very bureaucratic. So in that sense, it's not that representative uh, of the rest of China. But, I mean, my, you know, um, my wife has used this term. It's a middle-class meritocracy that you have very... The, Meritocracy, the political meritocracy operates very much at the middle levels. People who are there generally are hardworking and selected because of their uh, ability and virtue. And in the higher you go, it might not work that way. Like just to give you, this is off the act that you mentioned in the book, the Shandong people are very proud that they have had many successful public officials, but never an emperor, including in the post uh, revolutionary era, never a leader, because there's an assumption that once you get at very high levels, then it becomes, so the politics becomes a bit more dirty. So the Confucians, you know, in, in Shandong, they want to maintain a little bit of this kind of, you know, cleanliness. And, and, and so in that sense, I don't want to say that what happens in Shandong is represented the rest of China. Yeah. It's like a classic Sudha full dilemma, right? Where you're struggling between, you know, in some ways, juggling between, you know, being an advisor, a scholar and a sage. And then an administrator, bureaucrat, and an official on the other. And I guess this ties me on to the final question before I open up the floor. You know, you're now a chair professor at a faculty of law at the University of Hong Kong. You know, welcome back to Hong Kong. And as you know, uh, the past couple of years have been rather difficult for this, this city, you know, and we, we often hear a doomsday saying, or naysayers saying Hong Kong's done for. Hong Kong's finished. There's no hope. Uh, you may as well move to Singapore if it's too expensive. Uh, move to Sydney. I don't know. Move, move to Canada. But you will. But, but what do you make of these sentiments? You know, for, for someone like yourself who have so many, who have so many options, really. Why did you choose to come to Hong Kong? And what does this suggest, in your opinion, for the future of Hong Kong? And what is it in it that you find confidence and solace in, if if anything? Well, it's the people like you. If you really, I mean, uh, not pushy the there's so many like uh, talented people who are who are willing and 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 serve as bridges between China and the rest of the world, and this and and Hong Kong is is a place to do that in a way that might not be true. I mean, even this conversation, frankly, we probably couldn't have it not just in in mainland China, but even even in in the West. So so I I do think that um, Hong Kong is is a bridging place, and we have much more academic freedom and freedom of speech compared to the, the problem in Hong Kong is that still the major issues like the economic issues, the gap between rich and poor 
and the heavy emphasis, sorry, I'm not, I hope I'm not uh, criticizing anybody here on real estate, doesn't, as, as a major central plank of the economy, it doesn't seem to be resolved. Mainly China is moving much faster in transitioning to new models. Mainly China, two or three years from now, I'm still relatively optimistic. Um, but in Hong Kong, economically, there's still not much movement in that respect. Yeah. But I guess, I, this is part of my superficial analysis. I guess there's also dearth of direction, right? People looking for directions, growth engines, new trajectories. And, you know, one thing I was struck by when reading your book and your reflections is that good storytelling needn't be just telling good stories, you know? You know, to tell stories of what's happening, truthful stories, right? Balanced stories, stories with nuanced stories with flaws, because chances are, you know, China does have a lot of issues and problems, but it's a work in progress. And Frankly, China can afford to demonstrate to the world that these issues exist, these impediments exist, but that it is actively great government, great you know, society and great actors seeking to tackle these problems. And I think that's a, a key takeaway that I got from reading your, your excellent read and quip, really, on, on lamenting the fact that despite you attempting to advance a more sympathetic portrayal of China, a more nuanced understanding of China, you know, yet many in China may be somewhat uneasy when when engaging with your book or potentially allowing for the mass dissemination of it. So I guess a quick thing of question there before I bring in Mark is, you know, how is this book doing in China? Is it currently sort of in circulation in its English forum? Are there plans just for the interest of the readers to translate it into Chinese? And also, hopefully, uh, would you be doing your talks on it in, in China or in mainland China, in mainland China as well? Yeah, so thank you. It's a good question. I mean, I've, so I have done talks in in. In, actually, in Chinese, in mainland China, no problems. And I did lots of interviews about it. But the translation has yet to be approved in mainland China. But in Hong Kong, there will be a translation coming out, published by Hong Kong University Press. So again, it's a sign of the increased uh, academic freedom in Hong Kong compared to mainland China. Of course, it's being circulated, you know, uh, under the, you know, in a kind of um, not so legal way um, in mainland China. Um, and, and I, I'm told it's, it's being, and it's widely read. So, I mean, the, the one problem about censorship is that the decisions are made often not very well informed. Like one thing that I learned, and I, I didn't know this before, is that somehow we assume that the censors have full information, but they make decisions sometimes based on like the titles or the titles of chapters. So in English, I wrote titles of chapters to kind of catch the reader's attention. Has to be a little bit catchy. But some of those titles, when they're, when they're read by the, you know, relevant, you know, powers that be in Manchin, they, they think, oh, this is problematic and they don't read the text. So, so that's, that, that's an issue that if I were to, if I knew that this would have happened in mainland China, maybe I would have chosen more boring, uh, titles, you know. We often talk about, you know, Confucianism uh, as undergoing the China model of governance. But then would that, would the same, you know, also be applicable to the China model of critique or China model of social reform or China model of gradualist change and to what extent do you see Daniel sort of room for interpretation or application of Confucian wisdoms for those who might be outside the government or not necessarily within the most core power structures that be you know when it comes to how they could bring about changes to their communities and neighborhoods. Yeah, so in Shandong, there's a lot of at the in the rural villages. I mean, this before the revolution, Yang Shuming. We have an expert here, my who's now doing a postdoc at at at, at Hong Kong University, who worked on Yang Shuming. Works on Yang Shuming. Before the revolution, he would go to the rural areas and try to 
um, educate the local people and, and into, into the Confucian classics. That's still going on now in Shandong province. Um, so there's, there's a lot of this rural stuff. And so there's a professor at Duke University called Anna Son who does empirical research. She goes, she's a sociologist. She goes to the rural areas in Shandong and other parts of China and, 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 and shows how Confucianism is being taught at the local levels about like obviously filial piety, but other Confucian values too. So there's a lot of that. And sometimes it doesn't just happen from the top, like, um, the Qingming Festival, right? Which is in Hong Kong, is it a national, is it a holiday? Yes. Okay. Holiday. So in, in mainland China too, but it, it came from the bottom. Tens of millions of people took the day off and finally the government just said, Sonna, let's make it a national holiday. I, I don't know in Hong Kong how it came about. Where is it a recent national holiday? That's a very good question. Uh, I might have to consult someone older than me, but, uh, you know. But I mean, the point is that much of the revival of Confucianism, it doesn't just come from the top, it comes from the bottom as well. That was Professor Daniel Bell and Professor Brian Wong from the University of Hong Kong. I'm Carol Meng, and I invite you to join me next Sunday morning on Mind Matters. <laughs> <laughs>